Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 96. That's where we'll be this morning. Let me just say how grateful I am to be here. Again, my name is Sam, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm, I've been married to my wife, Shannon, for nine years. We have three sons, Jonah, who's six, Henry is four, and Lewis is two. Uh, they were on the picture that you saw earlier uh, on the screen, and uh, I have, for the past five years, been serving as a pastor at a church called Emmaus Church in Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, I've been serving there for the past five years as one of the staff pastors and uh, am now getting ready to move over to the United Arab Emirates. So uh, it's a long story of how this came about. Um, the very short version is that two people that were totally disconnected from one another both mentioned me for the same job. And uh, so at that point, I began to take it seriously. A very obscure um, seminary position in the Middle East. After the first time somebody brought it up, I said, let me think about it. No, not interested. And after the second person mentioned my name and the president of the seminary reached out to me, I thought, okay, it's a little bit difficult to kick against the goads. I should pray about this maybe. So I came home that day and told my wife, uh, babe, I think the Lord wants us to pray about maybe moving to Abu Dhabi. She said, okay, okay, great. Step one was Googling, where is Abu Dhabi? So if you don't know where Abu Dhabi is, it is uh, right in the heart of the Middle East. It's uh, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. It's uh, surrounded by some of the most dangerous countries on the planet, but the UAE itself is very open to Christians. And so uh, we're very excited to go there. Um, we are, so that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm here. We're seeking um, partners in this great commission work. I'll be going over there as a uh, theology professor. This seminary is the first and only seminary that's ever existed in the Arabian Peninsula. And so that's pretty exciting. Um, we're creating history, uh, being used by the Lord in, in pretty profound ways, I think. And so um, this is a region of the world that has had little to no gospel presence since roughly the 7th century. And uh, in his kindness, the Lord has opened up a door for gospel ministry. And so I'll be the director of a brand new campus of this seminary in Abu Dhabi. The seminary is based out of Dubai, which you, you may have heard of. Um, Abu Dhabi is actually the capital emirate of uh, this country, and so I'll be the director of the Abu Dhabi campus, and our region is located right in the middle of the 1040 window, which if you've never heard of the 1040 window, it simply refers to a segment on the global map that uh, covers the just south of the, the hemisphere. Um, it, it's sort of, uh, uh, it's right in the middle of the hemisphere and, and covering a little bit south of the hemisphere that is... Uh, one of the most densely populated and under-evangelized regions of the world. So there are a lot of people there, and very few of them know the name of Christ. It's also one of the most difficult regions for Westerners, like myself, to get into. And yet, our region is open, and there are men and women coming into that region, hearing the gospel for the first time at faithful churches, and coming to Christ. And uh, so that's... That's why we're there. We want to be um, this meeting place for folks from all around the world to come. They, they, ha they are meeting Christ, and then they get this insatiable thirst for God's word. And so most of the students there um, at the seminary 
don't even start the seminary because they want to do ministry necessarily. They're just hungry for more of God's word. And so they start taking classes and then lo and behold, that's what the Lord uses to call them into pastoral ministry. And so we are uh, going over there as missionaries of sorts, but we're also going over there as a missions sending hub. We want to send these folks back to their home countries to plant churches. So I'm here to, to talk a little bit about that ministry. Um, we are raising support. Bellwether is one of our supporter churches. We are still about $500 a month short of our goal to get over there. So if the Lord stirs your hearts to, uh, to give, there, there, there's a way I'll be able to tell you uh, after the service of how you can give directly. But um, we're here to, to share a little bit more about that ministry. I'm also feeling a tension right about now, though, because I am uh, a Bible teacher and a preacher, and this is the Lord's Day, and uh, this isn't exactly a pulpit, but it's functioning as a pulpit, and I think to do anything short of preaching a sermon on the Lord's Day in front of God's people is a scandal to me. And so rather than talking any more about the ministry that I'm heading to in the Middle East, I'd like for us to sit under God's word this morning and meditate on his purpose to receive glory from every tribe and tongue and nation. In other words, I want for you to feel from God's word an urgency for the nations to worship the Lord. That's what this psalm calls us to, Psalm 96. And that, I think, is the best way for me to explain why this ministry in the Middle East is so downright exciting for me. There are five lessons I think we learn about missions from this psalm, so I'll just tell you where we're going. Uh, the first lesson is that missions is motivated by God's purpose to be glorified. I'm going to repeat these points, so don't worry if, if you're not able to write them all down. So the first thing we learn from this psalm is that missions is motivated by God's purpose to be glorified. We learn, secondly, that missions is empowered by contemplation of God. We learn, thirdly, from this psalm that missions is driven by gratitude for salvation. Fourthly, we learn that missions is animated by a grief over idolatry. And fifthly, we will learn that missions is sustained by confidence in God. So we're going to go through each of those points in turn. But before we do, I'd like for you to to pray with me, and then we will read this psalm all the way through. Let's pray. O triune God, we come before you this morning. We lift up our hearts to you in reverent worship. We've worshiped now through song and hearing your word proclaimed and uh, in the giving liturgy, and now we continue to worship as we submit ourselves under your word. And so I pray that you would speak through your servant this morning. Water the hearts of those who hear your word so that seed that is sown in weakness might be raised in power. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 96, these are the words of God. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. 
Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. He, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This psalm is a summons to worship God. Many church services begin their worship formally with a call to worship, and it's a way of sort of initiating the gathered service. The way of reminding the congregation what they are there for. Come and worship the Lord. That's what the call to worship is. And so the fact that this psalm is a call to worship is not all that unusual in and of itself. There are calls to worship all throughout the scriptures, particularly in the psalms. What makes this call to worship so interesting, however, is that it extends beyond God's covenant people. What makes this psalm so interesting is that it's not merely a call to worship for the people of God. It's a call to worship for the nations and indeed for all of creation. It's a call to worship for the whole cosmos, the heavens, the earth, the sea, the trees, all the creatures that fill this planet and all the pagan nations that do not know God. Everyone is summoned by this psalm to come and worship God. I want you to think about what that implies for God's authority. He is the king of all creation. And he has the authority, therefore, to command worship from everyone, regardless of whether or not they want to worship him. This is why everything that has being exists. It all exists for his glory, for his praise. For his recognition, he made everything to worship him. Friends, our highest good, our ultimate purpose, the single greatest, most noble thing and most fitting thing that we could ever do, that we could ever strive toward, is the praise of our, is the praise of our triune God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism describes the highest good in this way. Question. What is man's chief end? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and and fully to enjoy him forever. We are realizing our purpose never more fully or more accurately than when we are living not to our own praise, but to the praise of our one true triune God. And so the mission of God that is, the mission expounded on and told all throughout the whole Bible is all moving toward this end. God has purposed for His name to be praised among all the nations. So that's what this psalm calls us to. That's what He has been concerned with from the very beginning of creation. 
That's what the nations were created for, and that's what he accomplishes in the gospel. This means that one of the severe consequences of the fall and sin in our now new fallen nature is that it brings disharmony to the marvelous symphony of his creation. God created all the cosmos for his glory, for his praise, and we have a role to play in that symphony. And when we sin, because of the fall, we bring disharmony to that symphony. We weren't made to function on the worship of anything but God. We harm ourselves, therefore, we, we, not only when, when we sin, do we sin against the Holy One, we actually harm ourselves because we weren't made to function on the worship of anything but God. So when we worship ourselves, or when we worship nature, or when we worship sex, or when we worship money, or our children, or our political party, or our security, or anything else, our comfort, anything else, when we worship anything but God... It's like pouring water into the the gas tank of your car. It's not supposed to run on that. It destroys us. God made us to glorify Him. That's what we run on. That's what makes us work best when we glorify God. And so missions, therefore, is a hearty amen to God's purpose to be glorified from coast to coast. He's purposed to create a diverse people for himself comprised of every tribe and tongue and nation who will worship him in the splendor of holiness. And so the heart of missions is to say, yes, I'm for that. I want that end. I want to give my life to that purpose. So that's the first lesson we learn from this psalm is that missions is motivated by the desire to see God glorified. Secondly, we learn that missions is empowered by contemplation of God. This is the engine of missions. Look at verse 6 with me. Psalm 96, verse 6. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Notice how David, the psalmist here, has something to say about God. These are actually profound theological declarations he's making when he says that splendor and majesty are before him. When he says strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The psalmist here knows God. He knows God's attributes, his perfections. Friends, this is doctrine the psalmist is standing on. The truths that the psalmist reaches about God's essence, these truths that he is, he is praising God for and which empowered his missional summons to worship can be had at by no other way than by contemplating the majesty of God. In our pragmatic age, we tend to to demand the immediate practicality of things. If I can't put it into immediate practical use, I don't want it. Give me the so that, pastor. Give me the so what. Otherwise, I'm lost. I'm I'm not paying attention. Friends, what I want to commend to you today is the value of theological contemplation, not as a means to an end, but as the end itself. 
thinking, pondering, dwelling on the attributes of God is plenty practical. Sometimes the only therefore that's left at the end of a sermon, at the end of a text, is to behold your God. It's to just adore him. Sometimes that's the only therefore. Therefore, adore him. God means God is no means to an end. He is the end itself. And so pursuing the ends as an end is actually what we were made for. And that means that if we do not pursue theology as a means to an end, but as an end in and of itself, we will get plenty of practical benefit out of it. So let us abandon the foolish thoughts that assume that dwelling on theology is somehow impractical. It is not. That's an appalling lie. To dwell on God, to go deeper and deeper into meditation of Him through His Word, to wrestle and grapple with tough concepts regarding who God is and what God does to the end of worshiping Him in awe and joy, this is what we are made for. The 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said this, Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in His immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. I agree with Spurgeon. There is so much joy to be had in contemplating the glory of God. And here's the point I want to emphasize right now. We cannot share these things with the nations. We cannot share that splendor and majesty are ascribed to God, to the nations, if we ourselves do not know them. Which means theological formation is not optional for missionaries. And any false dichotomy that separates theology from missions or theology from practical Christianity should be laid to rest. Listen, friends, the nations do not need theologically anemic missionaries theologically weak missionaries. They need missionaries who are awestruck by the majesty of God, who dwell and ponder on God's ways, who are ready to instruct the nations on doctrine that's sturdy enough to build a life on. They need missionaries who, can, who are prepared to teach about the triune God and the incarnation and Christ and Christ's active and passive obedience, who aren't afraid of big Bible words like propitiation, We'll come back to that word momentarily. The nations need missionaries who aren't squishy jellyfishes about what it means to be a church. They need missionaries who have convictions about all of these things and are more joyful because of it, because they know from experience that delight in God comes from doctrinal study. And this is why we're so eager to go to the Middle East to train up gospel ambassadors from around the world who can take years of training that we will pour into them back to their home countries, hard to reach places. We don't want to give them just a thimbleful of theology or a thimbleful of Bible teaching. We want to pour years into them 
so that they can take those years of training back to their home countries, hard to reach places that you and I will maybe never get a chance to ever get to so that they can preach the gospel to men and women that we will never meet about the irresistible glory of Christ, so that they can be the voice of their good shepherd, so that they can call out, and as other people hear their voice, they hear in the voice of these missionaries that we will send out the voice of their good shepherd and will come into his fold. I'm thinking of men like Negusi, the church planter from Ethiopia that ministered to my wife and I for hours as we sat in a mall in Abu Dhabi as he was preparing to go back to his home country to plant a church. I'm thinking of men like Pedro from Angola or Oscar from Colombia or Josh from Pakistan or John from India or Anwar from Lebanon, all who had very similar stories, faithful men who are equipped and becoming equipped to go where we can't go, to teach others that we will never meet about the irresistible glory of Christ. Thirdly, we learn from this psalm that missions is driven by gratitude for salvation. Look at verse two with me. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. What this summons, what this psalm presupposes is that we have experienced a salvation to tell about. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Tell about what? It assumes that there is a salvation that we have experienced to tell about. David experienced the salvation of God in profound ways. And by faith, he looked forward to the salvation to come. So he really meant it. He meant it in good faith when he said, tell of his salvation from day to day. He had a salvation that he was thinking about. And throughout the Psalms, he begs God's pardon for, for forgiveness of sins. But listen, here's the thing I want to emphasize right now. None of the Old Testament sacrifices that he participated in could definitively atone for sin and thus could definitively secure salvation. And so what does that mean? That means that we get to pray this psalm with an even higher sense of awareness than David who penned it. How God would bring about ultimate salvation for David and for his people was not yet clear for David. He knew that God could do it. He knew that God would do it. But he didn't know exactly how God would do it. We do. His name is Jesus Christ. God tells us how he does this, how he brings about definitive ultimate salvation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, I think we'll have it up on the screen here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul writes this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's it. If you have to have one single verse to describe the gospel, that's the verse that you go to. For God, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the message of reconciliation. That's the way that God reconciles himself to us. The eternal son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, one with the Father and the Spirit and glory and power and might, took upon himself our human nature to live for us, to die for us, and to rise for us. And I want to dwell on this for a bit more, friends, because 
I think that we should bask in the goodness of the gospel so that we can follow the psalmist's logic. He says, tell of his salvation from day to day. Tell of what salvation? So let's dwell on that a little bit. For those of us who are in Christ, our sins have been forgiven. How does that happen? Our sins are just forgiven. How on earth does that happen? Well, this verse tells us that Christ accomplishes this for us when he was made to be sin for our sake. And this is what theologians throughout church history have referred to as the passive obedience of Christ. The passive obedience of Christ. This refers to Christ obediently bearing up under the curse of the law, paying the wages of sin, The culmination of this passive obedience is his death on the cross. But listen, the passive obedience of Christ refers not only to his death, but to his whole life of suffering under the effects of sin's curse. Christ did this for us. He lives out the sentence of the penalty of our sin. Our sins can therefore be forgiven because he pays the price for them. The wages of sin is death, and he pays those wages for us on the cross, and he propitiates God's wrath. I told you we would come back to that word. He propitiates God's wrath. What does that mean? It simply means that he satisfies and absorbs that wrath in himself and thereby diverts it away from us. So the wrath of God do us because of our sin and our sinful nature was coming at us like the executioner's axe swinging down on our neck, and he put his neck on the line in our stead. That's propitiation. That's forgiveness of sins. But notice, salvation is not simply constituted by our having our sins forgiven. Salvation is no less than that, but it's actually more than that. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21 again. Oh, it's still not there. It's okay, just listen. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he that is God made him that is Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In whom? We might become the righteousness of God in whom? In him who knew no sin. You see, the sinlessness of Christ is crucial here, and this is the key to our becoming the righteousness of God or righteous according to God. The righteousness of God is the sinlessness of Christ. And this is what theologians throughout church history, have referred to as the active obedience of Christ. So we talked about the passive obedience of Christ, Christ bearing under the the penalty of sin for us, paying the wages of sin for us, but this is the active obedience of Christ. And this is crucial because we need more than the forgiveness of sins. We certainly do not need less than that, but we need more. Why? Because all throughout the scriptures, eternal life does not simply depend on having one's sins forgiven, but rather on being counted as righteous. Although our sin put our account overwhelmingly in debt, so to speak, so we were in the red, infinitely so, because Christ passively obeyed and suffered under the wrath of God, he took the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands and nailed it to the cross, is what Paul says in Colossians 2, which brings our account back to the black. Now our account is no longer infinitely in debt. But Christ, amazingly, does not stop there. Through his active obedience, 
He obeys the law positively and earns a righteousness for us to bear. So he credits his wealth to us, and now our account is in the green. It is righteous. We are declared righteous. This is what Martin Luther called the glorious exchange. My sin for Christ's righteousness my failure for his success, my impurity for his purity, my rebellion for his faithfulness, my trespasses for his obedience, my filthy rags for his spotless robes of righteousness. And friends, this happens through our union with Christ. By faith, we are united to Christ. All of this is happening in him who knew no sin. So by faith, we are united to Christ such that when the Father looks at us, he sees that we were buried with Christ. We were nailed to the cross with all of our sin with Christ. We were buried in the grave with all of our sin with Christ. And when he rose from the grave, we rose with him without our sin, without the stain of our sin. In the name of reconciliation, God sent Christ not only to bear the sin that our not only to bear the wrath that our sin earned, but also to earn a righteousness for us to bear. And this, friends, this is how we can worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Did you see that in Psalm 96, verse 6, or verse 9? Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. That is, worship the Lord adorned in holiness. Holiness is, is to adorn and beautify our worship. It's to mark our worship. How do we do that? How on earth can we adorn our worship with holiness? And the answer is through Christ. This adorning and beautifying holiness that marks our worship is made possible through Christ and only through Christ. Okay, so that is the salvation we are to tell about from day to day and to declare to the nations. And this implies that our missions is driven by a profound sense of gratitude. Not guilt, not competition, not a sense of adventure. Gratitude. That we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and we can't but invite others to taste and see his goodness as well. Listen, friends, true receivers of grace cannot be misers with it. That's what I want you to learn. True receivers of grace cannot be misers with it. Fourth, we learn from this song, that missions is animated by a grief over idolatry. This is the flip side of our gratitude for salvation. Look at verse four with me. Missions is animated by a grief over idolatry. David says, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. In their book taken from Psalm 67, which declares, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Their book that goes by the same title, John Piper and David Platt, in their book, Let the Nations Be Glad, they argue in that book that missions is not the end, it's not the telos, the ultimate purpose of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't in some places. Missions goes to where worship is not happening. So in other words, the question of missions is, where is the one true triune God of Scripture currently not being worshipped? Okay, let's go there. That's missions. Now, such a prayer, this prayer in Psalm 96, is 
animated by an overwhelming sadness of the nation's rampant idolatry. This is a big theme all throughout the book of Acts. For example, in Acts 14, the apostle Paul and Barnabas go to Lystra, and after God heals a lame man through Paul, the people begin to worship Paul and Barnabas. They think that they are the incarnation of Zeus and Hermes, respectively. And so Paul and Barnabas, how do they respond? Well, they don't respond by saying, listen, you're flattering us. People of Lystra, it's very kind of you, but we're actually not Zeus and Hermes. That's not how they respond. They, are, they respond with grief over the idolatry in Lystra. In Acts chapter 14, we read this, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then and again, three chapters later in Acts 17, when Paul is in Athens, we're told, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. This is what compelled him to begin preaching to the inhabitants of Athens. This prayer, this prayer in Psalm 96, all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. That prayer happens when we see the infinite worth of God in contrast to the disgusting and pitiful vanity of idolatry. When we see men and women deceived, Worshiping as God that which is not God. Hanging their hopes and security and devotion and future on that which cannot save. My wife and I experienced this grief when we visited our friends in Seattle who were planting a church there. We, one evening, one Saturday evening, we were walking the streets of Capitol Hill where there are signs in front of the the. the Restaurants that say that you're allowed to bring your, your pets in, but you're not allowed to bring your children in. <laughs> it's one of those kinds of places. And Saturday night on Capitol Hill, it, it looks like Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it is, there is unrestrained sexual licentiousness there. How should we respond to that? Not with a high-brow, high-brow, high-browed judgmentalism, but with grief, with sorrow that there are people who are thirsty and rather than quenching their thirst in the waters of life, they are drinking salt water. It's going to kill them. Or when we visited our friends Francesco and Claudia Arco, church planters in northern Italy, they took a sightseeing one day and they took us to these beautiful cathedrals lined with paintings and beautiful architecture. It was wonderful. But I'm telling you, friends, the, the, the loveliness of those places was stripped away in a hurry when we saw men and women praying not to God, but to venerated icons, worshiping the Lord through the mediation, not of Christ, the mediator between God and man, but of icons, paintings. Those beautiful, beautifully, paint, beautifully crafted paintings were beautifully crafted idols. And the iconoclast in me wanted to burn it down, but I, I would never ever do that because I also love art and history. We also have friends who are in northern India right now ministering to Tibetan Buddhists. And before they left, they gave me a slideshow of 
the people that they were going to be ministering to, Tibetan Buddhists. And in that presentation, I saw pictures with men who had sore and muddy faces. Why, why were they sore and why did they have muddy faces? Well, they were worn out from devoutly traveling miles like inchworms in devotion to their idols. And friends, if you ever join us in the Middle East, I pray that you will feel the same ache of sadness when five times a day the call to prayer rings out throughout the streets and countless men and women stop whatever they're doing so they can bow down, bow their faces down towards Mecca to pray, not to God, but to Allah. The idolatry of the nations should not produce a curious interest from us. Like, wow, what interesting cultural customs. When we see our neighbors, local and global, we should burn with a zeal to see them turn from their idols to worship the living God, the God who can actually save them because their idols can't. Okay, fifth and finally, we learn from this psalm that missions is sustained by confidence in God. Look at verse 10 with me. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Those who are in Christ don't fear the day of judgment. For us, it is a profound comfort because it tells us that we know how the story ends. Friends, the mission of the church will succeed. I'm absolutely confident of that. The mission of the church will succeed because the mission of the church is nothing less than the mission of God, and God's purposes cannot be thwarted. We know how the story ends. Revelation chapter 7 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every, tri from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels who were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and honor and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That and nothing short of that is what Jesus Christ purchased with his blood on the cross. He purchased the gladness of the nations. He purchased the worship of the nations. That's the flock for whom he laid down his life. And so... We go to the nations in the spirit of this psalm. We go to the nations to declare the Lord reigns. We go to the nations to say Christ is risen and he has purchased you with his blood. He is the rightful Lord over all of creation. So cease your rebellion and swear allegiance to him. And if you do, he will atone for your crimes. He will bring you into his kingdom with full amnesty and he will even make you a member of his royal family. This is the sure outcome of the mission of God. This is why we can send wave upon wave upon wave of missionaries to smash against the dam of unbelief. They can smash against that barricade over and over and over and over again, and nothing is wasted. 
Though believers may live and die for Christ without seeing any fruit from their labor in this life, they can spend their lives gladly because they know how the story ends. Friends, I told you earlier that this region that we're going to, the Arabian Peninsula, has been without a significant gospel witness there since the seventh century. That's not for a lack of trying. Missionaries have been going there ever since the birth of the church, the early church. Missionaries have been going there. And none of their efforts have been wasted. God has been using all of it. And right now, he has opened up a door. And we owe so many, so, so, so many of the opportunities that my wife and I now have, we owe to those countless waves of missionaries who have continued to go. Nothing has been wasted because we know how the story ends. That's what motivated them, and that's what motivates us. We know how the story ends. We know that Ethiopians and Angolans and Colombians and Pakistanis and Indians and Lebanese and Afghanis and Ukrainians and Russians will stand before the throne to worship God Almighty through Jesus Christ. Knowing how the story ends ought to invigorate our efforts. Friends, we literally cannot lose. Even if we die, we don't lose. Now let me close with three very quick charges to you from God's word this morning. The first is to everyone who's here, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, the charge from God's word is to worship the living God. Worship God. Live for him. Friends, this is what we were made for. Christians, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, when we pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are begging God to do something. We are begging him to set his name apart as holy and revered. Lord, hallow it. Hallow your name. Make it holy in my life, in my home, in my church, in my workplace, on my run, on my drive, when I eat and when I sleep. May the gravity of your holy name be the center of everything on earth just like it is in heaven. Oh, brothers and sisters, do we want for the worship of heaven to permeate the earth do we want for the recognition of God's holy, holy, holy name to be as commanding here on earth as it is in heaven? I pray we do. Oh, that we would be struck with the fresh insight of God's grandeur so we could respond with worship. So that's the first charge, worship the living God. The second charge is to the Christians who are here this morning. And the charge from God's word this morning is this. Be about the mission of God. Be about the mission of God. Listen, this is not a select call for a select class of Christian. I'm afraid we do ourselves a tremendous disservice when we talk about missions people. Oh, the Parkinsons are just missions people. No, we're not. You would not have said that two years ago. No, brothers and sisters, to be a faithful Christian is to be a missions-minded Christian. Now, don't get me wrong. Not everyone has the unique call on their lives to go to the nations, to be a pioneer missionary, to go where Christ is not named and uproot their families and come down into a totally different context. That's not for everybody. God's not calling every single person to do that. But every Christian must be concerned with the nations becoming glad and in Christ and singing for joy. You may say this as clearly as I can. Christ's mission, Christ's mission, is to redeem a bride 
from every tribe and tongue and nation and people so that the nations would be glad in him and sing for joy and God's glory would be celebrated from coast to coast. That's what Christ is up to on this planet. That's what he's up to. So if we are worshipers of him, we will be for that as well. We will orient our lives around that mission. So not all of us are goers, but we are all at the very least senders. which means that the Great Commission is our mission. And when one of our own is sent out, we are participating. May we never consider ourselves passive in this. Friends, please don't keep me at arm's length. Don't just, I'm very grateful for the financial support, sending me a check every, every month. Very grateful for that, but please don't keep me just there. We are partners in the gospel. You should think of one of your own representatives there in the Middle East, Pray with me. I'll pray with you. Let us encourage one another mutually. That's why I'm here, so that you can meet me, so that that partnership can feel real. So be about the mission of God. Third and finally, this one is for any non-Christian who may happen to be here. Friends, I don't, I don't really know any of you. I've met a handful of you so far, but I don't really know any of you, so I'm not going to take anything for granted. I'm not going to presume that everyone here is a Christian. If you're not a Christian... The charge is to come to Christ and experience your chief end. Come to Christ to experience what you were created for. If you're still clinging to idols, we would plead with you to join us. Become glad, tire of yourself and your many methods of seeking satisfaction. Turn from your sin and throw yourself upon the mercy of God. Listen, your life could never be good enough to win the approval of God. That might, that might be bad news, but it's actually good news. Why is it good news? It's good news because Christ offers to be good enough for you. So receive him. <laughs> the bad news is that you deserve to die eternally and be condemned under the wrath of God for your sins, just like all of us. The good news is that you can let Jesus Christ pay that penalty for you. So if you come to him in full and honest desperation and say, I'm going to bank my whole life and hope and future on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on my behalf. I cling to nothing of my own. I swear allegiance to this lovely Savior. If you come to him with those empty hands of faith, he will give you himself. He will have you. He will bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. You will praise God. You will sing for joy and you will be made glad. So that's the invitation. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Come and heed the call to worship of this psalm through Christ. In him, with your sins forgiven, you can worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for what your word teaches us about the gospel and our purpose. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves to figure out our identity or what we exist for. You've told us there's a user manual. We exist to worship you. I pray that you would take this word and do with it what no mere sermon could do ever apart from your Holy Spirit. Would you feed our souls with your word now? Nourish us with your presence. And now as we come to the Lord's table, I pray that you would nourish us now with these elements the emblem of your body and your blood. Lord, may those 
who are currently excluded from you, may they be drawn in. You bid them come and welcome. So may they be drawn into your fold. And please, Lord, as we come to these elements, as we sit at your table, so to speak, would you knit our hearts together in love with our global family? May we be burdened and resolved to invite many, many more to join us here in your family so that your glory may be reveled in among all the nations. Father, we beg you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the righteous, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of the Holy Trinity. Amen.